Hey everybody, welcome back to Terminus, the cold lake of extreme metal podcasts. I am the death metal guy, aka I just got my Groove Metal Band's logo trademarked, so I guess you can say we're basically ready for OzFest. <laughs> and I'm the black metal guy, aka people say listening to Vega Dude is cathartic, but I still can't move my jaw. <laughs> uh, I was watching... Uh, the other day I got stones and I watched that old MTV show, Battle for OzFest. Uh, just uh, terrible, um, like, 2002-era local metalcore bands battling it out to see whose career can end faster. Mm. Well, who won? Oh, it, 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 I looked it up. It was some band that ended up doing, like, two albums and then breaking up, but... I was just impressed by the sheer number of frosted tips on display and trip pants. Yeah. It was, uh, it was yeah, a real yeah. flashback. <laughs> Does OzFest work? I mean, I, I guess obviously now no no live music exists, but did OzFest exist? Uh, did it survive into recent history? I don't think so. I think that OzFest was mostly a 2000s thing. Yeah. Um, I almost want to look that up. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm googling. I'm, I'm, I'm googling it right now. Yeah, ends in 08. There we go. I gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was probably longer than it needed to last, anyway. That's certainly true. <laughs> All right. So, uh, interesting show today. Lots of weird records on display. Uh, I don't think that we have anything new in terms of news. So, real quick. For those of you listening, welcome. If you're new, uh, drop us a comment or subscribe. And then if you want to get really invested, feel free to follow us on social media. You can follow me, the Death Metal Guy, on Facebook at Terminus Podcast, or follow the Black Metal Guy on Instagram over at Terminus Extreme Metal. And additionally, if you really want to support us and you want to listen to people jaw about extreme black metal tapes uh, all day, every day, you can do that by supporting us on Patreon or Subscribestar. $3 and up gives you access to our Terminus Prime bonus episodes, and $5 and up gets you access to the Terminus Black Circle, our uh, private Discord group where we talk about auctioneer rhythms and how they may apply to tech death in the future. Just got a new patron today. Thanks, dude. Yeah, thanks, guys. Uh, all right. So, uh, we're doing the sandwich today. You start us off. I hate when you call it a sandwich. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. Okay. So, um, Strix. So, first off is a, uh, a listener submission uh, by a band called Strix Askesis. Uh, the self-titled. It's a self-titled debut record. Uh, independent released it's on Bandcamp. it's pay what you want uh so recommend checking that out um and it is punkish american raw black metal possibly possibly outlaw rock <laughs> mm -hmm. at this point we judge everything and its merits based on how close it comes to our ideal of outlaw rock <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 well we'll talk about we'll get to that in the review definitely uh, so second, uh, we have Malist with Karst Relict, uh, released on Northern Silence Productions. 
Uh, Malist is a Russian one-man melodic black metal project. This is the project's third record. And Northern Silence you're probably familiar with as being one of the bigger, like, Atmo black labels out today. Uh, but there's actually a lot of good stuff that sneaks in on there, too. And uh, second for me is going to be the debut full-length by Poland's Insertus, uh, entitled uh, Predestination to Damnation. Uh, this is out on Defense Records, uh, a label that I wasn't familiar with, but appears to be sort of a Polish in-house label. And uh, definitely an interesting record there, so I'm looking forward to hearing more from both that band and checking out more of the Defense Records catalog. Cool. And we're uh, following it up at the end with um, our, I'm sure, long-awaited review of The Thule Grimoires by Ruins of Beverest. That's out, of course, on Vaughn Records. Um, although I think maybe they also did a bigger release. Did it get put on Nuclear Blast? I'm, I'm just like... I think they've got... I think Vaughn's got a distribution deal with Our, a lot of the big guys now. So yeah, even if okay, it wasn't word. officially done through them, uh, I'm sure it's widely available just about everywhere. Okay, yeah, no, I just checked on the YouTube. It still says VOD. It's sort of few, to be honest. Um, but um, but yeah, so, uh, you know, this came out a while ago, but it's a big album coming out this year, and it's still relevant, so we should talk about it. All right, so first up today, we have the uh, self-titled debut by Strix Askesis, and... As the uh, the extrovert of the podcast who talks to all the people who submit things, uh, what's the story here? <laughs> uh, this is a band from Vermont. Um, don't know that much about it. It appears to be a one a one dude project. Um, and he got in touch and said said he'd been listening to the show for a while. Um, and said, you know, here's this project. Uh, as far and as described, it says primary influences include Judas Iscariot, Hate Forest, melodic and raw black metal generally, and other non-black metal influences. Perhaps it could even be considered outlaw rock. <laughs> um, which is, if you haven't heard, it's a term. It's a term I made up on like I, I don't know, ways back now on on some episode to describe a certain kind of American black metal. We can talk about that as this review goes on but um but yeah so also a strix strix is like related to the word for a screech owl. it's like greek for a screech owl and it's also mm -hmm. related to like words for witches like you know like strigoi or it's it's or probably lat lat strigoi is latin for 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 witch uh or yeah it's, something like that or you know like striga yeah Something like that. Related word related to owls and witches. Don't you know? I don't don't trust my etymology strictly. Strix, legendary creature of ancient Roman mythology. Yeah. Okay. Genus of genus of wood owls. There we go. Um. So it does indeed have a cool owl on the front. So um. This is uh. I think as far as stuff we've heard so far, this strikes me as the closest to like something like Old One Gash. Yeah, uh, I think that I think that this comes from place uh, pretty. I think that I think that this guy and Old Wan Gash are listening to a lot of the same music. I think they take it in slightly different directions, yeah. but I think a lot of the formative influences are going to be the same. Yeah, and so formative influences being just the the sort of like basic. Yeah, the melodic sensibility is very different. The arrangements are very different. 
Um, but like the so- the sort of the basic song format, right? Sort of like driving, sort of punk beat, you know, stompy, stompy punk beats, one, two punk beats, blasting used as kind of color. And then this sort of uh, guitar that draws on European heathen black metal, but also really just the least metal aspects of it. And it has the jangly, rockish quality, and you can hear hardcore, and you can hear all sorts of other American music trickling into it in one way or another. Yeah, uh, this is, when compared to something like Old Wong Gash, this is definitely on the raw, more like stripped down side. Uh, this definitely mm-hmm. has the sort of like the audio style and the presentation of like kind of an old Klaxon Records thing. Not quite as noisy, but it's got mm-hmm. that same stripped-down garage rock approach, uh, which I think is also which where is a lot of the definitely an inf- comes from. Yeah, for, for, for sure. And, you know, as you've said before, it seems like Judas Iscariot is... You've pointed out that Judas Iscariot is a big common thread in a lot of this uh, newer American stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, cool. So maybe we should do a... Uh, should we, should we just lead with a sample? Yeah, let's just lead with a sample uh, because I think that we actually see this record kind of in different ways. I think you're a bigger fan of the first mm-hmm. half and I'm a bigger fan of the second. Um, so let's uh, go with one of yours, uh, your first one, and we'll just kind of go from there. I, I, I liked the whole thing, but uh, but I, I picked my samples from the first half. Um my um uh, my favorite song on the record is definitely the first. I think this is just a perfect song. Um this is called Hysteresis and uh we're going it's it's a it's the second longest track on it. I think it's like it's about no no third but close. Okay. It's it's about 8 minutes. Um and this is uh starts out with some ripping kind of fa- you know, like following the voice of blood, thousand swords ish melodies over punk beats, kind of just really good, solid verse ripping, sound, rip, riffing, ripping, and sounds pretty grim. <laughs> but, um, uh, and, and, but by like the three minute mark, there's been a fair amount of development, and we are in the middle of the development, and the song is going places. And you're going to hear some sounds and rhythms that you might not normally identify with raw black metal. Thank you. 
I gotta give you credit. I think you're the person that actually turned me onto the jangle as being a uh, a valid uh, guitar tone for black metal. Oh yeah. yeah oh yeah. I was when I was when never did you understand uh, that? <laughs> but you can you can stand this. Oh no! I, like over since we started doing the show, really, and you showed me more of this like jangly stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I I started to realize. Oh, this really does work for certain styles. So, I mean, before it was just like, it was too much for me. I, Cause I remember listening to bone all when I was younger and just being like, God, this just sounds yeah. bad. you know. Yeah. Well, bone all with bone all also. Yeah. I mean, neither we, this guy probably likes bone all, but we, we, neither of us is a huge bone all fan, but I don't think that tone does super works with like the kind of just hardcore riffs that bone all use. Um, yeah, like it, it works it's here. The the jang- yeah, the jang lends itself sounding like a folk instrument, and this definitely has that quality. Um, I, I keep coming back to the tone on um, following the voice of blood. I feel like that has to if if that's not a direct influence, it's like a real parallel. Oh and no, I think a lot I of think that whole I think that whole album is probably a big influence to this because it's got the same sort of like what like elaborate compositional technique through bashing you know in the same way yeah yeah, yeah, yeah the record does yeah obviously this guy or these guys whatever uh are much more talented just on an instrumental level uh, than Gravely yeah, 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 at yeah. the time. But I think that they're reaching mm-hmm. towards a similar sort of like, you know, barbaric, heathen, primitivist thing. Yeah, this is very, yeah, I agree. Yeah, this is very primitivist sounding. Yeah, just the whole idea of like, yeah, there's not very much triple time in, uh, like, triple, there's not like that characteristic triplet, triple time lope you get with, mm-hmm. with the Graveland records, but like, um, but there is a similar idea of just doing kind of simple driving beats as the backbone for an eight minute song. Right. And there's no, like, like this track is just all riffs. There's no like spacey part. Well, I mean, I Um, think there's, I think there's space in it. It's just the way that, you know, spaciousness for this band is more uh, a mechanism of how complex the riffs are. You know, I, I feel like when these guys break into kind of a stripped-down traditional black metal riff, that mm-hmm. is designed to be the breather, in contrast to a lot of bands where that's designed to be the really aggressive, propulsive section. You know what I mean? I think I see what you mean. When when those riffs hit at the end, they're almost like I feel like they're definitely kind of climactic, but it's almost like oh, there are some of those too. Right yeah, at the end like, he starts he's he's done that he's done that kind of rising um and then builds it up and then you just start getting that just that descending motif. The dis, the descending part of the riff becomes the basis for this blast melody at the end. And it's like, yeah, suddenly kind of almost unexpectedly we're in more conventional black metal territory. Yeah, it's uh, the, the conventional black metal parts are sort of the exhalation to the inhale of all the more 
abstract, uh, weird technical parts that are all across this record. Yeah, I get what you mean. Yeah, so we should talk about the we should talk about like the center of that, which was basically where we came in on the sample, right? He was there was kind of kind of doing this build up, um, and during the build up, you could hear I think a basic guitar method that continues throughout this, which is the riff. There's two channels for the guitars. The riffs are basically all present on the kind of lower voice, mm -hmm. um, but the and then the top. The, the, you know, the slightly higher guitar, like higher in the mix or different, slightly different timber is uh, often doubling it, but then we'll sort of drift away from it to embellish on the riff. It often will do that halfway through a sequence of repeating riffs. Um, there's plenty of repetition here to get, you can get your hooks in it, you can thrash and whatever, but like the top part changes pretty frequently. Yeah, there's like and... not not a lot of there's not a lot of rote repetition here no yeah even when it's uh even when it's doubling up you know the the baseline riff so mm -hmm. to speak mm -hmm. uh it's usually with like a, a weird harmonic variation or something it's sort of like mm -hmm. a way to get those really abstract slavic chords but through two guitars so you get some rhythmic variation as well yeah, 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 that makes sense. And and um, even if they were doubling, the slightly different tone produces a distortion effect. Like, uh, you know, yeah, it's cool. It's a different... Me I like this method where both guitar... You know, both guitars are doing sort of significant work. I like this method better than the idea of, like, one guitar fixed playing power chord roots on a rhythm guitar. You know, yeah, and yeah. the other, I mean, it's, uh, the, the other doing the chords. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're hearing a lot of that lately. I mean, we heard a lot of that in the Exsanguinate record from last episode, where it's uh, it, it's not really a rhythm and lead guitar role. It's just you know a flat plane for each of them, where they can do whatever is necessary mm -hmm. for the song. Yeah, and also in terms of willingness to like embrace the repetitive core of the music without doing just cut and paste repetition. I feel like into oblivion. We're all about that. Yeah. Uh, and there's, there's a fair amount. What? Oh, I was just going to, well, into oblivion does it a little bit differently just because their melodies are so sprawling. Like by the time you get to the end of a riff, you mm -hmm. forget what the beginning <laughs> was. So, and it's got some of that yeah, like, yeah. repetitive motivic stuff, but this is more firmly rooted in black metal tradition. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, the Into Oblivion was way more, way more elaborate, for sure. But just, like, uh, just a similar kind of basic impulse, which is, like, how can we, without producing, like, music where the riffs change every repetition, right, without making spazzy stuff, how can we add a degree of kind of organic musical variation in it? Um, but, yeah, then those, those sort of, then those sort of punk chords start stacking on top of each other, and the rhythm starts to fragment, and the, the chording gets a lot more dissonant than people are used to in this style, although it's important to remember that that kind of dissonance is core to all the old Slavic bands, at least, mm -hmm. a degree of dissonance in the music. Um, and then we just get this, uh, we, but we get this sort of like clanging, tense, uh, kind of kind of like, you, you know, mathy, hardcore moment, and then just, bam, 
breakdown. And when you think the breakdown's going to hit like a, I was almost thinking of like sectioned during that kind of buildup. And when the breakdown hits, it's not like, you know, some chug thing. It's like a Graveland, Bill Skernier, Barbarism Returns kind of riff. And it's just so heavy. Well, I mean, the, like, the thing that I always associated with, like, in a big way, would be, like, some of the newer Converge stuff. Like, uh, like Axe to Fall On. You know, where they start bringing in a lot mm-hmm. more of these kind of, like, trundling melodic riffs alongside some of the spazier tech parts. I could see even, like, the last one, like, The Dusk in Us being something that these guys probably listen to. Interesting. Yeah, maybe. Um, certainly, I mean, I, I, I think I hear what you mean. There's certainly a lot more melodic color in the newer Converge. Um, but yeah. w- where that hits, one thing, I, just the thing that really got me there is just how simple that riff is there. That's that like great... Um, you know, you've heard it a thousand times. You've heard things like it a thousand times before, but drawing it out just in that way, sip stripping it down just in that way, harmonizing it just that way, it has a kind of, um, instead of feeling phoned in, it feels more musical than a riff with more notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, uh, well, speaking of speaking of more notes and speaking of uh, melodic yes, color yes. in uh, mathy stuff, uh, let's talk about the next one. The next the next track. Well, the next sample. Yeah, the next sample. Okay, yeah. Oh, so yeah. So this one. Well, first, yeah. Let's then we'll loop back to the next track, or I think that actually relates to your overall feelings about the record. So then there's a second track. We'll come back to it. Then we're on track three, the looped road. And again, I'm sampling from the back end of the track. Uh, this is at around the four-minute mark. Um, and you're going to hear some harmonic ideas that are very unfamiliar in black metal. Um, and that, I think, ten years ago, certainly aren't what I a lot of us came to metal for. Certainly ten years ago, I would have... I might have liked this record just because it's so sort of punky and pagan sounding, but like I would have heard something like this and I would have seriously like raised an eyebrow from it, right? <laughs> but we're trying to be like open to new kind of textures and ideas in this music in general, right? And so here's an interesting, uh, here's an interesting version of it and watch, listen to what uh, St- Strix does with it.
last riff is like a uh, a recording of a maypole dance played in <laughs> like triple fast forward. That's a great description of it. Yeah, that is so. It feels very, very ancient and joyful. Yeah, it's an ecstatic moment. It's very ecstatic. Yeah, that's that's perfect for spring. I mean, and how many guitars are going there? Is that two or three? Well, it's kind of hard to tell because I'm not sure. If, <coughs> excuse me, I'm not sure if this record has a bass or not. I don't it's think it has a hard, bass. Yeah, it's kind of hard to tell if those low tones are just a, a very weirdly shaped guitar timbre or a bass. Uh, but I think there's like three distinct lines going on. Yeah, there's like the one is just hitting an open like a an op- a drone maybe on an open string, and then you've got two others playing the riff in harmony. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's like slight little improvisational twists thrown into some of the lines as they go on. Yeah. There's a kind of openness that I, this, this album has a couple things that I've expected, wanted to hear more in recent black metal and maybe thought could come in via this American outlaw rock thing, right? Mm -hmm. This kind of thing that has the black metal spirit but isn't really bm anymore uh which is this kind of more rhythmic dynamism and just sort of more musical openness more possibility of improvisation just doing doing stuff like that and you know just like even just like when those riffs are spiraling down towards the end he just starts like changing changing up the top riff a little bit just like one and two note little twists and turns in it yeah, and the whole thing, <clears throat> at least in terms of presentation, especially with the, like, really, like, burst-oriented drumming style across this, a lot of this mm-hmm. sounds like Lightning Bolt to me. Yes! Yes! Um, I was thinking that, too. Yeah, let's talk specifically about... That last riff definitely could have been blasting Lightning Bolt, but let's, like, dial it back up to the first place. When that sample comes in, we hear sort of the first weird scrunky version of that melodic idea Mm -hmm. um that yeah that could be lightning bolt i mean i have a vague only a vague memory of stuff like this but like mount erie or something or the microphones Mm -hmm. these bands bands my friends listen to um just this kind of like kind of manic manic major key uh kind of indie rock thing yeah, I mean, it also reminds me a little bit of the the really, like, prog-edged emo stuff out there from the 90s, like the Appleseed cast. You know, some of their most intense moments would be kind of like this, just, like, really weirdly harmonized, really ecstatic. Um, but, that, I mean, honestly, though, what a lot of this does have a lineage to, because you wrote about it in the notes, um, you associate mm-hmm. a lot of it with Kralis, right? As did you, right? This is... Kralis in particular, but also this sort of broader, um, like, Brooklyn art black metal thing. Which is usually a bad thing, but these guys seem to have taken the the best possible lessons from it. Because something that I compared it to was uh, Castavet, who are basically forgotten now. Yeah, Castavet was a good... They were sort of from that scene. Castavet was like very kind of downcast and heavy. So, in which way do you mean? I but they were a great oh, band. 
Yeah. Oh, well, not not this sample in particular. Um, actually, mm-hmm. the my first sample will be a little bit closer to it. But Castavet did, mm-hmm. they were doing kind of like Brooklyn art black metal, but they seemed really interested in like orthodox black metal, especially like the nastiest kind of intervals. And the kind of like yeah, hipster yeah. pedigree of it seemed to mostly come out through just like a lot of rhythmic variation. You know, a lot of riffs that extend past the bar, that sort of thing. But it was like, actually, because when I thought about it, I went back and listened to a little bit of Castavet, and I'm like, no, yeah, if, if Castavet kind of like went down to like raw tape black production, and it was just a couple guys in a room, mm-hmm. a lot of it would kind of sound like this, particularly the darker moments on this record. Interesting. I, I, I'll i have to listen to it again, because that was a good band. Um, uh... And, you know, I remember when I felt really embattled against that sort of music, I heard Castavet, and I was like, okay, well, I guess there is a good version of this. But well, yeah, about the Kralis thing... Yeah. What? Oh, I was just going to say, Castavet are kind of like... It's, it, they, I, they're almost like yellow eyes, where it's like, yeah, it's like Brooklyn hipsters, but they seriously care about black metal and want to do a good version of it. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah. From what I remember, the cast of that dude was legit, and yeah, the guy from Yellow Eyes similarly, right? They like actually pay attention to the music and care about mm-hmm. it. Um, uh, but yeah. So, but with Kralis, right? I mean, just there is this weird. I never thought there was a place on the Venn diagram where Kralis would intersect with raw, stompy pagan black metal. Um, but these guys. You know, originality is often about finding these sonic spaces nobody knew, nobody even thought existed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and when, yeah, when you take this weird, when you take this jangling tone and you start going up the fretboard with a single, with like leads, I, it starts to sound, and hitting these sort of spiral, cascading major key melodies, it starts to sound like that kind of drill bit guitar thing Kralis was famous for. Yeah, um, yeah, they, they and, like those piercing high-frequency tones. Yeah, and this thankfully doesn't hurt your ear in the same way and isn't designed to like... This is designed... They st- This band still aspires to sound good. Um, yeah. But, but like, it's interesting... Yeah, I mean... But and Kralis is sort of like Kralis definitely is you know yeah we don't don't like most of their stuff um, saw them live and left um, to go get beer but they um however however like if you talk to people in, in the New York metal scene or whatever like those guys are like respected uh, because they're just really serious musicians, especially like the drummer, I think, what was his name? Lev Weinstein or something. It's like, people were like, oh, that guy's a fucking metalhead. Um, and the Kralis guys like did their, although they were not for the most part, you know, as a band, the band was not in it for black metal things. Right. They like, you could tell that they like had big record collections, whatever, or like, uh, you know, uh, Colin Marston had a hate forest shirt before it was cool. Right. Yeah. Um, and 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 yeah. So it's 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 interesting hearing though. I guess it's like and Kralis like can produce good riffs, right? It's mostly like their specific decisions about the kind of music they want to make that makes it not great. But like, this is kind of like 
drawing on the potentials for black metal that are in a band like that and bringing them out, which is kind of cool because, you know, they did do innovative guitar stuff. And so if you carry that back into a truer format, maybe that's useful. Oh, yeah, it's kind of the equivalent of what we talked about with, uh, like, brutal death bands taking these ulcerate ideas and then reapplying them to their own style. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think... Uh, yeah, I, I would... Obviously, I think ulcerate's in a bit of a different category from Kralis, but I hear what you mean. Well, yeah, yeah something but I, that's I in mean, this kind of... Yeah, I mean, just, like, the equivalent of, you know, taking these ideas yeah. back from something kind of outside the scene. <laughs> yeah, taking taking something that seems sort of rarefied or arty, right? Um, yeah. And, uh, and reapplying it in a more gut-level way. So, yeah, that's interesting. Also, I accidentally heard the new Kralis record the other day. This is why it's on the brain. It auto-played on YouTube, and I just kept, before I knew what was happening, it was just playing. I kept listening to it, and I was like, oh, oh no, I like this. Yeah, you had a it's, little moment of shame. It, well, it was a lot more, it was a lot more, like, riff and melody-oriented than stuff in the past has been. There were, like, we, interesting use of keyboards, so I don't know, you know? Yeah, um, I'll have to check it out. Anyway. So, uh, my feelings on the record, I, d I think this is probably my favorite listener submission we've gotten so far, like in terms of oh, yeah? you know, nice. someone's own band. Yeah, no, I like this a lot. <clears throat> uh, I'm not a huge fan of the kind of like mathy hardcoreisms on the front half of the record. Mm -hmm. um, they're not badly executed, but... The kind of like spindly Kralis thing, that works better mm -hmm. for the style. I think there's just, there's kind of not enough body in the production to sustain those like really chunky, complex ideas. Because um, they're cool, but they become kind of unreadable with the twangy guitar tone. So, uh, my favorite stuff on this record comes from the back half where it settles into a little bit more of, like, a, a straightforward black metal style, I would say. I mean, there's still a lot of mm -hmm. the elaborate ideas from the other tracks, but these these are, like, shorter songs. They're a little bit more punchy, uh, a little bit tighter. You don't have quite the spaciousness that you do on some of the other tracks, but I think it works really well. Um, so I want to play a sample off the track, Upon Wings of Crepuscular Hunger. So just for context, the first minute or so is kind of like a post-black thing. It's uh, It's got really cool texture work, but it's basically just build up. And this is where the song kicks into gear. And you're going to hear some riffs that you really wouldn't expect in this kind of music. And I found it really refreshing.
listening back to it, those last couple riffs where it kind of slows down, those are almost like Isis Oceanic riffs. Hmm. At the end? Yeah, yeah. When they, in those more melodic moments off Oceanic where they pulled back on the hardcore a little bit, the kind of like swaying nautical stuff they would do. Yeah, that's that's what that kind of reminds me of. I could hear that a bit. Yeah. So I think this whole passage is really interesting because, first of all, like opening up that sample after that little trailed off part from the intro, um, that's a really gnarly riff, isn't it? I describe it as being like kind of cult off and zivvy. That's like one of the most like aggressive and just kind of like severe riffs on this record. Yeah, that does sound like a called off on Zivi. Yeah. Um Yeah, it's got that that rigorous dissonant interval idea. It's it's very under a funeral moon. And then they kinda iterate on it, or the basic form for a little while. And, you know, that second riff I think mm-hmm. is very like Roman Sanko, very like Druid on like the Swan Road or like pre Cambrian a little bit. Um and then it's it goes very to... very much like a hate forest riff. Like a classic kind of hate forest riff. But yeah, like it's just more... weird. To, it's weird to hear like a hate forest riff with drums that are alive. You know what I mean? I I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. So it does feel like Druid that way. Um, yeah, it could be like one of the more aggro Druid riffs for sure. But like anyway, whatever's classified as right, he takes this very. It's cool that he has this very kind of, as you said, abstract, dissonant riff and keeps those chord ideas going in this more folky sounding kind of dynamic riff. Yeah, right. yeah. No, it's it's very, I think the riff development here is really fascinating because he he never really makes the, the melodic tones less dissonant. He just manages to, in the concluding riff, kind of arrange them in a way that's like less grating. You know, it's, I mean, closer, not, not closer to a melody. Yeah. Yeah. Closer to mm-hmm. a melody, but he's still using those constituent elements mm-hmm. of those really ugly kind of harmonies and chord textures. So, which reminds mm-hmm. me a lot mm-hmm. of some of the cooler, gnarlier parts of like, uh, that, uh, they came from visions record that we covered last year. You know, those, those really hmm. somber kind of peasant melodies. Interesting. Uh, I think I kind of hear it. I can't really remember. There's like, I can't remember their riffing style well enough, but I think I get what you mean in general outline. Yeah, it's just, it feels more authentically rooted in that kind of courting than most of the bands using Mm -hmm. those ideas do in the U.S., yeah, yeah, for sure. Yes, this guy. I mean, thankfully, we're hearing a little more of it now. But this guy is actually inside the Ukrainian style of guitar playing. Like Definitely. he he could nav he can navigate. He understands how to form chords like Sanko and use that vocabulary to create his own kind of melodic ideas. Whereas, yeah, there there has been you know Slavic stuff has always been a huge influence on USBM, but it's always been. At the beginning, it was very much sort of the general impressions of it imitated from the outside by Kralos or Wolves in the Throne Room, right? Yeah. Now, so, nowadays, you know, a lot of these guys... Whatever. yeah. Yeah, a lot, nowadays, a lot of these guys actually understand, you know, what makes those riffs mm-hmm. tick. Um, and yeah. then, 
so my last sample, uh, this is going to be off the final track, Stonewell of Ascesis. Uh, and mm-hmm. this is very openly like a kind of emo-ish post-black part. But uh, one of the strengths of this band is these post-black parts that they incorporate into the fold of the songs work like actual parts of the songs. Because, you know, the worst crime mm-hmm. of a lot of post-black stuff is that it's pretty and it sits in place, you know? It doesn't develop, it doesn't go anywhere, it just kind of shimmers like a 30-second clip off an Explosions in the Sky song for five minutes. Mm -hmm. Here's a way... Well, I tell you what, I'd rather hear 30 seconds of Explosions in the Sky than five minutes. (laughs) Come on, I like them. Yeah, whatever. Um, (laughs) But here's here's a cool... Here's a cool way to actually implement it. So this is the big climax of the song at the very end. Um, and I just think it's, mm-hmm. you know, pound for pound executed better than most of the other bands that try sections like this. Here's another moment where listening back on it, it's like, oh, these guys know how to use emo technique within a black metal song because they know that an emo passage is not structured in the same way a black metal passage is, you know? Oh, okay. So what do you mean? Yeah, I, when I hear that, I was like, when I was listening to it yesterday, I was like, oh, okay, here's the emo part for the death metal guy. Okay, there it is. <laughs> I'm, I'm always... Always arguing with you about whether something is or, you know, whether something is emo. But there I'm like, okay, that's emo. Um, okay. Yeah. But it sounds it well, sounds great. Yeah, no, I think it's it's great. And there's a lot more, like, aggressive riffing throughout this song. This is an eight-minute track. <laughs> but, no, mm-hmm. what I'm saying is, like, they understand that because it, 
In this case, it actually sounds like emo, rather than it sounds like someone's impression of emo, which is what it usually does in a lot of bands that use parts like these. And that's because they understand that for it to sound like emo, it has to open up. It can't Mm -hmm. be riff-based in the same way that a black metal passage is. It has to open up. There's room for that sort of like wiggly improvisational stuff that you hear on some of the more aggressive black metal parts of this record. Um, Mm -hmm. It feels Mm -hmm. expansive. It feels like it sprawls out in multiple directions melodically, all rooted together in this same sort of motivic descending guitar gesture. Um, And it it works great because it plays to the strength of the style rather than trying to do a perverse fusion of the two. It's just, this is the natural way to conclude it. Yeah. That's kind of like what I was saying about like pop ID, like sort of like that kind of poppy melodic BM riffing. It's like what I don't, I, I was saying before, like what I don't like is when like, you know, Finn Black worship bands or Migla clones sort of accident are trying to write what they think is really heavy, epic black metal and accidentally write pop melodies. Right. They're like, <laughs> when they're like, when, when they're like not in control of the influence. Whereas when like Panikita writes straight up power metal melodies, they're in control of the influence. Right. I and so you. like, yeah. Yeah. And so these yeah, guys yeah. are in control of the emo influence in the same way. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I mean, I would say kind of rounding things out. I think this definitely belongs in the, the outlaw rock milieu. I think it's a, it's a different. Oh, for time. sure. But yeah, it's absolutely within that context. Um, it's, uh, this is a really good record. I think I like it more after listening to these samples again. Um, the, oh, I think my only, nice. yeah, my only real complaint I would say is I feel like the lack of a bass is kind of a missed opportunity on this. Um, clearly these guys have great ideas for how to arrange complex guitar melodies. Uh, the drummer is really excellent uh, because I, I love how kind of loose. Yes, there's really good is. drumming. Yeah, it's excellent. Mm-hmm. And the whole band feels very loose and jazzy in a way. You know, it feels like it's a session, mm-hmm. you know, <clears throat> with those little improvisational details. But I think adding a bass guitar for another melodic dimension, as well as also just to fill the sound out, would make those big moments even bigger. Uh, because just for me, the sort of like super garage rock production is cool. But your ear gets a little little deadened to it at a certain point. You know what I mean? I, I would like to hear this a little bit more polished up with some bass guitar and uh, really give all of those melodies the room to breathe that they deserve. Oh, you always want it polished up. Uh, <laughs> it's, um... I... I, I, I think if, as far as the bass, I hear what you mean there because... I feel like I feel like adding a bass could be one way to avoid polishing the sound. Okay. Like instead of getting instead of getting beefier guitars or instead of getting sort of uh you know clean Yeah, instead of getting beefier guitars, right? You add a bass and so everything can still sound can still have this kind of uh jangly low distortion string instrument quality but it still adds heaviness 
You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that's what I mean. I mean, in, in instead, terms of yeah. that, that would be polishing it for me. It's just adding. I that. hear what you we mean. Don't, we don't need to remake the production style, but adding that that frequency mm-hmm. in there would would be cool. I think. I I get what you mean. Do you think it would fit in the mix? I guess they have to play around with it, but just because there's yeah, so I much think, guitar already. Well, I think yeah, I think that you. I think it would fit in really well because I think you produce it like. Uh, like uh, almost like a post-punk bass you give it a real clear tone you push Mm -hmm. it kind Mm -hmm. of like more forward in the mix than you would expect but the frequency is so different it leaves the guitars plenty of room to breathe i think that'd be cool well you sold me um uh (laughs) as as far as yeah as far as construct my constructive criticism would be the way i hear i think i have more time for some of the um fractured hardcore sounding parts on this just because I, you know, I grew up listening to that stuff and it's interesting hearing those kind of frenzied rhythms in this context. Mm-hmm. However, I wonder if you would have liked the first half better if track two wasn't there. Track two um, really left me cold and I'm not sure why. I think track two is the Achilles heel of this. You know, it would be weird if there weren't some problems, right? Because it's, I mean, again, I really love, I like this, I really like this band. I'm, I'm all about this. I'm all about the owl theme um, of the tones. But, like, track two feels like if this band's thing or what part of the thing is incorp- skillfully incorporating these aspects of post-hardcore and art black stuff into a more raw punky framework Mm -hmm. number two is where they sort of just write a post-hardcore song yeah Um, and it's just it's over long it just it doesn't really work it it's you know you know what i i listened to it a couple times walking around last night and i felt like i find this song actually very entertaining but it's entertaining in a way that, like, well, it's entertaining. Black metal isn't entertaining, damn it. Um, as in, like, you you listen to it, you listen to it, and you think, like, there are like also for the listeners, there's just like a bunch of sort of um bunch of crazy rhythms. There are uh, dramatic changes in key, like what sound at least to my naive ear, like fairly dramatic key changes, harmony changes minor to major switcheroos and stuff that happen all very quickly and it's all accomplished with like a lot of skill and so it's entertaining to hear the musicians playing right like kind of like live jazz or whatever it's like i enjoy it on that level but like uh then it opens up into this big synthy thing and i like how the synths sound and that's great but the song kind of ends and then starts again after the synths um and so it's kind of like three tracks and it just doesn't feel like, I mean, I get that this music doesn't have to be strictly black metal. That's kind of why we came up with the outlaw rock label. But like, if you're shooting for something that has this, you know, if you're shooting for something that's rooted in the black metal tradition, that has this earthy sound that has a pagan sound that has a relation to history, right? You know, something that sounds kind of modern and polished and conspicuously intelligent isn't going to be in place. You know what I mean? Yeah, I get that. But 
all things considered, yeah. I, I this is a really good first record for these guys, and I really, I, I am actually very curious to hear more of this and hear the direction that the band goes because it's clearly a guy or guys with a very kind of personal, distinct vision of the kind of music they want to make. And whenever mm-hmm. I find that, I'm excited because I want to hear organically what happens throughout the uh, throughout the discography. Oh, for sure. This has that, like, spark to it. There is, like, you could hear, like, there is something distinctive here, and it's only going to get better. Definitely. So, very good record. Uh, glad that uh, our listeners are providing us stuff like this. So, let's, uh, let's take a mm-hmm. quick break and get on with uh, another record. This is a little one gash, and you're listening to Terminus. All right, we are back, uh, and this time we have Malist with uh, Karst Relict. So, uh, like I said at the top, this is the third record by a Russian one-man melodic black metal project. And uh, apparently it's the third in a, a trilogy of concept albums he's done, which is some sort of... Uh, sci-fi hero's journey kind of thing uh i have a soft spot for kind of like sci-fi themed stuff in general just because it's like it's a little bit of a palate cleanser between all the high fantasy stuff that you listen to especially in black Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. uh i gotta say this record does have a quality of being distinctly kind of futuristic sounding and sci-fi but without any of the tropes you'd associate with that. There's no industrial beats or big synths or anything. It's very, very straightforward, but it manages to communicate that vibe pretty well, I think. Yeah, it's just the idea. I mean, it's like just the kind of shimmering punch, the sort of punchy shimmering guitar tone derived from Migla, like is already kind of sci-fi. Mm-hmm. You know, like, if if you can take that guitar tone and just make it more sci-fi sounding and those <laughs> kinds of melodies. So I, you, I put hear, the, you put the sci-fi patch on in, uh, in Pro Tools and see what happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, obviously, this is, uh, this is Franco-Finnish and McGlaw. Uh, those are the, far and away, the most obvious black metal influences, especially, like, Sargeist and McGlaw. But after listening to this record and digging into it, uh, while it sounds like those bands, I think what this really is at the heart of it is a, like, Gothenburg Melodeth record. Um, And I think in particular he's drawing a lot of influence from early Dark Tranquility and the first couple Amana Marth records. Did you hear that too? I didn't hear the amount of Marth. Um, I, I don't think. Maybe in certain parts. I, I think I overall agree. I, I didn't hear the Sargeist. I, I had a hard time telling what that was. Maybe just some of the more corded riffs. Yeah, I think the corded riffs are are pretty pretty Sargeisty in a lot of ways. But then this guy does have, admittedly, a very interesting harmonic vocabulary, which does take it beyond those things. Yeah, I, I heard, I just heard, I heard a lot of Migla, and I heard a lot of Melodeth. Um, I think, like, yeah, the Melodeth, like you said, is not obvious. 
but it's under it's sort of under the superstructure of the riffs. Yeah, there's um, not like big slaughter of the soul riffs or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear what you mean. Yeah, so maybe we should pull a sample to give them a sense of what you mean. Because normally, right, normally this kind of music has a very, um, I guess you could either say very, well, people describe it as melodic. You could have a very consonant, ex extraordinarily nice sounding sense of melody. Um, uh, yours truly would call it bland. Um, but this band has unusually for bands working this particular vein this band has like some more weird weirder kind of darker harmonic ideas right yeah so i got a sample off the opening track uh this is the closing couple mm -hmm. minutes of the first track remaining light and uh here's a really good example of this specific melodic and harmonic language that he's using uh because you're going to hear a lot of these sort of glorious epic like Franco finish ideas, but adjusted with these uh, kind of darker chromatic phrases tucked within them, uh, which makes for mm -hmm. something that's a lot more subtle and dynamic than a lot of the guys operating in this style. So uh, let's give this one a try. So yeah, what do you think about the the kind of custom built harmonic language here? I mean, I think you described it pretty well. Uh, it was interesting at the beginning. I think I heard more of what you meant about the Sargeisty thing. Like, there's the kind of um, somewhat like slightly neoclassical sounding minor key kind of moves in this uh, moves in this kind of steady. Uh, eighth note spaced kind of way um, and, mm -hmm. and it was weirdly bouncy that's what stood out 
to me was that the first riff had this kind of bouncy gait to it. Um, I think that's one of the things that uh, reminds me so much of Sargeist. <laughs> oh, because does Sargeist do bouncy? Oh, yeah. Sargeist goes really bouncy. Yeah. Like on Let the Devil In, there's just like fun, like bang your head for Satan parts all over that record. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the... um. So yeah, I mean the second thing I don't know. I just it, it I liked the I have no particularly strong ways of characterizing that, but I liked the way it opened up. Um, a thing that some of the melodies remind me of they, they definitely have like a kind of he's getting some dissonance from just the way that different melodic ideas intersect with each other. Yeah, that's there's true. not a lot of like th there's not a lot of like this is a guitar playing a dissonant interval, but there's something like the two guitar parts go over each other and interact with the keyboards in a kind of way that grinds more. They yeah. sort of that the there's there's like friction between the different harmonic parts, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, he seems to also do things like taking notes away from the standard kind of sargeisty scales in ways that actually makes them sound a little bit darker or more kind of uh like he's good at making melodies that sound kind of downcast right yeah i, I know what you mean he's kind of deliberately stripping away parts of like conventional mellow black scale run riffs uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, creating these sort of negative spaces within them that give it this more brooding character. Yeah, especially if you're expecting the riff to do a certain thing and it kind of doesn't. Um, And so, in a way, like, what it reminded me of was like a really, really simplified version of some Ludomysel stuff. Ludomusel. Yeah, I can hear that, because Ludo, Ludo Missile has that kind of spacey quality, too. Well, and it sounds more French than a lot of other Slavic stuff, right? It has those mm -hmm. sliding sliding two- or three-string chord riffs. It has... It, it, it moves... He'll move over somewhat similar kinds of patterns as Sargeist does, but with this more kind of uh, solemn mood to it oh yeah, yeah uh, no, sargeist is party music ludomissile is is not even if it operates in a similar sonic space yeah so i think it's i think it's interesting that he's trying to give this music some more kind of weight or gravity than you might expect from this um i don't know any anything else about that part no that's i'm good we can go on to yours all right so this is uh satellite um and this is just a i guess continuing on that idea that there's this kind of distinctively down mood to this um you get these makes the riffs kind of sound brooding kind of like and you get it, yeah and uh there's a switch here that's interesting from a kind of like uh darkened major key to like a kind of like brighter sounding minor key kind of idea which is a pattern that you pointed out sylvan throne using yeah using kind of the uh, the brightest parts of the minor scale and the 
most dour parts of the major scale. Yeah, so there's some interesting harmonic stuff going on here, too. And it's just good, uh, straightforward, it's good sort of nuts and bolts riff work that produces a pretty unique feeling that I think is pretty consistent with what the part you just played us. has a, a ton going on melodically yeah so at the end we're right back at the at the first riff which has this you could i think here it has this kind of um it's kind of major key feeling but it's very depressing um yeah yeah and uh, the thing that strikes me, yeah, so you were talking about that bridge, the sort of, um, when we get the separated out bass and those kind of uh, descending, kind of chiming arpeggio things right before mm -hmm. that riff kicks in again. Yeah. Yeah, there was a ton there. Th that melody, the trem melody that comes in over the top is really detailed and good, too. I didn't notice that on my first listen. Yeah, now there's, uh, I really like the way, the way this guy shapes almost everything off this sort of dual lead stuff 
it reminds me of some of the mm-hmm. some of the best parts of like early dark tranquility around the gallery and stuff um where you've just mm-hmm. got these sort of spiraling endless riff shapes kind of contorting around each other in interesting kind of unexpected ways um it's there's a lot of work put into designing this stuff i think yeah so what what do you make of that that weird middle part so so that's a good example of like a kind of yeah i think that's a good example of uh what you were talking about regarding uh you know, taking these scale run riffs and then removing notes from them to make them a lot more dour. I I think that that's the example of that because you can you can hear in your head the the conventional finish way to do that or mm-hmm. something. You know, the the simple kind of like scale running up and down with you know just you know five eight three etc. But he takes it in a different direction just by removing some of the notes, creating something a lot starker and darker. And just just starting on the starting on the two and dropping to the one is weird. Da 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 da. Yeah, he's yeah. making da, da, weirdly da, da. tense music out of these relatively simple kind of scale arrangements that you hear in this style a lot. Yeah, and that's a place that I think has an interesting rhythmic character to the melody, too. It sounds sort of like, that sounds pretty like a, I don't know, like a a rolling bass in the technical sense, like rolling bass part on an organ in a Baroque kind of thing. That's Mm. almost got this sort of majestic kind of Bach feel to it in a much simpler form. He's definitely accessing the sort of like, dark neoclassical quality of a lot of that's that's sort of buried in modern like franco finnish stuff yeah yeah it's it's in it's in sargeist for sure and it's in like uh and it's also in that melodeth stuff you're talking about but yeah that that's just a really weird riff to me man it like it lurches and then it just kind of hangs around maybe for like a little bit too long but also i think that that's the point Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like, think there's a the riff doesn't narrative. it doesn't really have internal momentum to it. The riff, so it kind of hits at first like a breakdown, and then it just keeps going. But it kind of makes sense with how just all of these again, all these descending kind of phrases and stuff. It it kind of makes sense. The persistence of the riff kind of makes sense with the melody. Yeah, I'd say um, so. Um. So are you ready for big stonkers? You know I love a stonker. <laughs> uh, so yeah, obviously this guy is great at doing these kind of more sophisticated takes on these conventional mm-hmm. mellow black riffs. But then occasionally he just says, hey, I'm just going to do one of those, but really big. And he's he's wrecking like half the people out there as far as just straight up stadium black metal warm beer at Vakken giant stonker riff <laughs> he's got some fucking killer ones on this record so this is off timeless torch which is right. probably my favorite track on the record and uh yeah it's just 
it's just giant riff after giant riff. So let's try it out. Mm-hmm. at Vakken. All the security has left. The gates are still locked behind us. We have no idea when we'll be allowed to go home. <laughs> the organizers have stopped answering <laughs> questions. But here is this riff to arouse me from my tent once more. <laughs> Day 31. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that, oh, those are yeah, the, giant. The, those were all... Yeah, those were all good riffs. I mean, I think like the one, the middle one there, before you get to the super kind of, you know, that last one was kind of like a chorus riff, but the one that builds to there, that was the thing that reminded me most of Ludomusel. Yeah, I can definitely hear it on that, like how he just kind of, because with the two repetitions, the first repetition, he lets that that last chord just hang in the way that Ludo Missile would do. Mm-hmm. And then when he brings it back around, he changes it to sort of an old school Melodeth fill on the back end. Uh, it's just, it's very detailed guitar writing. I like it a lot. Yeah, it's got that very ascending, it, it, it sort of ascends in an elaborate way that reminds me of them. Um, uh, but yeah, and that that first riff too, the one that has just the straight up Melodeth riff, yeah, that that's a Vakken riff. I, I mean, I don't love the the anchoring riff, but the way that like the the chords harmonize over it, oh, it's yeah, kind of yeah. like uh, little little sort of arpeggios in hitting this major chord idea over it and it just sort of pulls at the underlying riff in a really interesting way so yeah, and it makes it I very agree. powerful so like <coughs> yeah so yeah, that's so, a strong sequence of riffs for sure yeah and now let's get to the important thing which is you'll notice that we've just sampled off the first second and third tracks uh and that is because 
the fourth and fifth tracks on this record, shall we say, suck the momentum out of it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so they're called A Way Through Limbo and Lifeless Ease of Non-Being. And boy, do they sound like it. I it I, is, I think they yeah. do. The, these songs are um, very, I think they're meant to sort of generate a kind of hopeless, uh, doom-filled, uh, sort of endless journey atmosphere, and they do that very effectively. Uh, <laughs> the record really starts... The record really starts dragging here, um, and it's, uh, it's like, and, and it's partly a matter of, like, part of it's in the writing of the riffs, but part of it's in the tempo. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I don't know about you, but I got a persistent feeling throughout this record that he plays things like a little, like, like 10 or 20 BPM slower than you would expect them to be played. I agree with that. I, I think that he yeah. does operate in kind of a weird liminal space of tempo a lot of the time. I remember some of my friends who were into electronic music would always like talk shit about 120 BPM music, <laughs> which was supposed to be this kind of, it was supposed to be this kind of like, I don't know, like, used in kind of vaguely clubby music that was kind of neither here nor there, right? Um, yeah. And this is, a, the tempo quality here is very neither here nor there. It, it, and some of those earlier riffs we sampled, like that slow lurching riff, you get a sense of how the unexpected slowness can, in some places, can give things a personal touch and can make them feel very different from how you normally expect. Mm -hmm. But on these tracks... You know, the, the entirety of these two tracks is just plotting sort of slow kind of um, just chord, chord, chord over and over again. And you could play them at a bit faster clip, maybe, and make it a bit driving. Or you could play it slower and write different kinds of melodies and make it sound doomy. And it's we're kind of left neither here nor there. Um, yeah, so. no, I know what you mean. Uh, I, I think that... <coughs> yeah. You see, for me, it's like, I actually, because I noticed that really distinctly, those middle two tracks really just kind of jam up the whole record. Um, I feel like if you just remove them and you just kind of listen to the rest of it through, it really salvages the back half of the record a lot. Um I think that what we're running into here is possibly an overcommitment to the concept album idea. I'm sure that if I read into it, it's like, mm -hmm. oh, these chapters are, you know, the, the hero's downfall or something like that. So I think that they have a purpose. I think they're made the way they are deliberately, but I definitely don't like them. And I think that overall they're deleterious to the record. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, I kind of think it should be a three song EP. I mean, I feel like the first three are tight and have a coherent and interesting sound. I So here we get to Thonic Trinity, track six. And I feel like this, this track is somewhat more exciting than the two in the middle, but I feel like it has a lot of the same weaknesses. Um, okay. It's, it's, well, here it is. It's like, I think you uh, you have more time for this kind of writing than I do. 
Um, mm -hmm. But this is a good example of a certain kind of thing I always complain about with music like this. When I complain about like bands influenced by Migla or influenced by the Finnish bands writing melodies in a way that kind of feels like it's written on a grid, mm -hmm. right? So like if you think about a, a, a sort of stereotypical Migla melody, like like uh, it'll be these sort of runs of eighth notes played exactly like not swung, right? Kind of exactly straight eighth notes, right? Um, do 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 do. You know, I mean, I can't. Yeah. You know, I'm not humming a good Mingla melody right now. But um, and uh, this is like eighth note, 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 right? And so here you'll you'll get some of that writing here, and you'll hear how he tries to deal with it, and it kind of works, but yeah. Um, right. Let's 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 try. point here so that last blast riff so I, I mean obviously like i think it, most of you listening to it those could hear how much the beginning of that dragged you could hear that it was a little slower than we would expect it to be you could hear it wasn't even eighth notes he was just cycling through quarter notes steady 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 then puts the chug under it and then we get to the big dramatic part and that part is obviously better right yeah it's like fast there's a lot of notes um and and it's so it's like it, it's better and it's kind of it's it's elaborate and exciting but to me it feels very similar to the quarter note quarter note quarter note stuff that came before it because it feels like it has this kind of migla fill in the blanks quality where you've got this grid of eighth notes da 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 um and you, the way to make a riff like that good, in this case, right, the strategy he chooses is 
you make sure it changes on every single note and you make sure they're spanning up and down high and somewhat unexpected intervals so yeah. there's like it's leaping these gulfs rapidly and like yeah i've heard a lot of bands that do it worse but uh you know like it almost it doesn't really have the natural movement of a melody and migla finds ways to make things like that they introduce little variations in timing that give things a more kind of melodic quality or they really play into the inorganic quality of it and and sort of like work with the grid in this way but um i feel like something like that is a good example of like you know no no matter what intervals he picks for the particular notes it's still held back by this sort of preset quality to it and i feel like i'm only <laughs> picking on it in this context because it's a relatively well executed version of it that i think sums up like a problem a lot of people fall into when they play that kind of riff yeah i i, I get where you're coming from uh i i totally agree with you on the uh like the first main riff in that sample that's just a not very <laughs> well executed version of like and exercises in futility riff. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's not Do, bad. And it, you bad. you could hear the turn. You could hear the turnaround from the end of exercises in futility, right? Oh da, yeah, da, yeah, da, da. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, if it was even just a few years ago, that would probably be okay. But at this point, it's just like shit, man. People are putting riffs like that in every black metal record now. But for me, when you get to the, mm -hmm. the faster one over the blast beat, mm -hmm. that one I do really like. And that's where it just comes down to, I've got the time for those sort of grid melodies. Um, mm -hmm. I, I just see that as a, a kind of like format of a certain kind of black metal riff at this point. And mm -hmm. like, cause I've written God knows how many riffs like that of just eighth note runs but it really is all about the mm -hmm. kind of interval choices and the harmonic ideas. And I think that the the sort of more dramatic up and down intervals that he chooses elevates that beyond the standard. Yeah, it comes down to a personal taste thing at that point. Well, um, definitely. Um, but I, I think overall, I think we basically think the same things about this record. I just have more patience for its negative aspects than <laughs> you do just because I'm, I'm mm -hmm, by default mm -hmm. into this style of black metal, but yeah, yeah you I, like I this, agree. you like this style. So yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that we both agree that the first three songs really should be the blueprint of this project in the future. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. First three are great. And I think just like, I mean, as far as things to work on, just sort of like, there's often great development within riffs, but, you know, just sort of seek transitions between some of those riffs that are refreshingly different from each other, but it can be a little hard to bridge from one to the next. Um, mm -hmm. And stuff with, yeah, something about, like, working out that tempo. Like, can, can you take that interest in slower tempos and maybe realize it's a songwriting habit and start using it strategically and playing things faster in other spots. 
Yeah, no, I I agree. I think that this is a guy who... <clears throat> I think this guy is a really talented guitarist to a fault, almost. And I think mm-hmm. that he gets he gets really honed in on these sort of elaborate twin guitar melodies, and he's excellent at that. But what he needs is to round off his style more. Um you know, ex- explore mm-hmm. some different ideas, maybe listen to some different music rather than, like, pulling apart piece by piece the guitar technique of, like, his favorites. And... Oh, I see what stuff, you meant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just let the stuff gestate a little bit more organically because I think this is a guy who just needs... He just needs, like, a little more patience um, and a, a little bit more... I don't want to say other influences, but to a degree, just listen to yeah. more and different kinds of black metal. And I think that when you combine that bigger palette of ideas to draw from with the obvious talent he has on the instrument, we'll get something really special. I think that's a good point. You know what it is, kind of? It's just like, it's fine to be influenced by Megla, it's fine to be influenced by Dark Tranquility. But if you combine, if those are the main influences and you combine them, then you're sort of left with what do these two things have in common, which is a, and it's like Migla already sound, kind of sounds like Dark Tranquility. Yeah. So you're left with this kind of bare, you're left with this kind of bare bones framework of hyper melodic sort of big, big arena metal. And it doesn't give you a lot of room to work with. So yeah, if you could expand out laterally, that I think would be good. Yeah, <laughs> I think we're in agreement. So uh, let's see, what would be a good interlude? Anything, uh, any space black metal you're a big fan of? <laughs> I despise space. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, uh just leaning into the stereotype a bit. No, um, <laughs> I think what we should ma- could could we play? Would we get like copyright? Yeah, no, we probably can't play Dark Tranquility because we'd get copyright blasted. Um, oh no, I mean it probably not uh, Dark Tranquility. I mean we could play some. What's a what's a good track off Sky Dancer? Well, we got you've got more experience with that one. We got we got murked for Bob Dylan, man. Um, That's a little uh, more popular than Dark Tranquility. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose by a few, yeah, by a few factors of ten thousand. Um, uh, do, I, I, you know, I actually I don't like Skydancer that much. Um, but the one, the stuff earlier before that, early Dark Tranquility. Okay. Um, okay. So, um, I checked it out real quick. Let's just go for yeah, as you said from the Moonclad Reflection EP. Let's just go for the first track, Unfurled by Dawn, and this will give people an idea of that kind of old dark tranquility sound we've talked about which also is mentioned a lot by i mean as far as a popular band that's talked about that a lot in interviews obsequii always said like their sound is highly highly influenced by sort of like yeah more more the more death metally mellow death so uh yeah all right here you'll you'll hear interesting you'll you I was just going to say, you'll hear an interesting parallels to early black metal stuff, and this is actually 1992. So. All right. Let's, uh, let's check it out. Uh, we'll uh, listen to some old, old Dark Tranquility and get back with the back half of our show.
back after some old dark tranquility with the debut record by Insertus titled Predestination of Damnation. Uh, this is one of those just totally random finds that I mm-hmm. stumbled across. And I feel like that's how we get the weirdest music on this show. <laughs> it's not based off any connection or a recommendation. It's literally me clicking on random links and finding something truly weird. Yes, I, I agree. You you do have a talent for that, and this is certainly <laughs> one of those. Um, uh, certainly, I would have clicked for the album cover alone. It is very cool. Yeah, yeah. it's... Uh, so, how do I even begin to describe this? So, Insertus is kind of reaching back in time towards a, a particular style of Eastern European death metal from, I'd say, around the mid-90s that never really got too far outside of the scene. Like, a good example would be a band like Hazael or something mm-hmm. like that, which is kind of doomy but you wouldn't call it doom death and kind of proggy but you definitely wouldn't call it progressive death metal and uh, like limited playing ability but a very weird sense of melody and how songs should be arranged Uh, you know it, it manages to be true kind of outsider music despite how clearly like death thrash it is at its core I feel like I've seen that Hazael album cover. I'm just looking it up now. Yeah, they have a a, a Viking kind of theme on their early one. Mm-hmm. Thor. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I I can hear it. This sounding kind of Eastern European for sure. Um, it's it's almost a little bit like I guess I don't know those Polish bands obviously, but. Um, you could think of this almost as like a master's hammer death metal. Yeah, or like Carpathian or, Wolves death metal or something. Yeah, but like without the kind of zany quality that Master's Hammer has, right? Yeah. Like, it's, this is pretty serious stuff, but it feels like it's much more proximate to classic heavy metal uh, than a lot of death metal is, and yet... Um, you know, you, you in the notes, you mentioned Maiden, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's like, like you said, this is very proximate to traditional heavy metal in a lot of ways. There are just kind of like full fledged sort of Iron Maiden or U.S. power metal riffs, but, but overdriven through a death metal sensibility and made so much more extreme by their surrounding context. I, I don't... There's really no easy comparison for this music out there, I don't think. Yeah, let's go to an example of it. So this is in um, Ultima Nakat. This is just the opening track. Uh, there's some... They also use organs as the default keyboard pad. Mm-hmm. Um, and they use them in really weird, interesting ways. So let's go into... Uh, we started with a little bit of organ. Now we're about a minute and a half into Ultima Nakat. Let's start from there. All right.
I've got so many questions about this already. Well, God, if you like, I mean, I had listened to it with my headphones till just now. The mm-hmm. sheer physicality on the on the low end. Oh yeah, the bass tone is fucking huge on. There's this. basically sub bass here. Yeah, it's and I love how how weird and incongruous all the elements are. Like, why are the vocals so fucking extreme and like? Because it's fucking death metal. Yeah, um, I, I know. This it's just, is. Like it's so idiosyncratic though, because like obviously, if it was an if it was like some random American guys in New York, mm-hmm. it would just be kind of a raspy shout, you know. He, here, no, it's full fledged like gory death metal vocals, and it's awesome. I, I think that's kind of the conceit for this band: is you start from a very eccentric idea of what death metal is, this much mm-hmm. more melodic, heavy metal like thing but take really seriously the idea that it's supposed to be death metal in terms of this like primordial idea of death metal that you and I have talked about, where it's like everything is really low, everything as loud and crushing as it can be. Everything feels really physical. Um, Yeah, no, it's, I think that this is, and it'll come more to light with some of the later samples, but this is a band that seems very preoccupied with like proto extreme metal. I think they perceive Celtic Frost and Bathory as mm-hmm. being like death metal in a way. I hear that. But so in terms of nearer parallels, I mean, in terms of what this actually sounds like riff style there, you could hear those sort of galloping kind of maiden riffs with these kind of more epic intervals. Um, you could hear it open up into some more kind of epic riffing stuff. And then, of course, that were often shred guitar solo territory. Um <laughs> the sort of maiden death metal thing without mediation by Melodeath, that's very much in the tradition of like Argos and these other kinds of uh, like early Cauldron Black Ram, things like that, that have these galloping rhythms, organic tones. Oh yeah, that big riff. Dum, 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 that's so dum, awesome. dum, 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 dum. Yeah. Straight Conan so- the Barbarian shit. Exactly. So that's very much in that tradition. But where, like, those bands all kind of emphasize a thrashy quality in their music, right? It's that kind of, like, arrogant black thrash, kind of thrash war metal quality, um, right? They, they have this sort of thinner, deliberately thinner, more thrash heavy metal, black metal tones. Um, yeah. This band just plays like a death metal band, right? If you listen to our gospel, you'll be like, how is this death metal? It doesn't really sound like anything else either. It's, you know, it's really eccentric. But if, but this band is definitely death metal and is clearly operating. It They could be directly influenced by that sort of thing, or they could not be at all. It could be pure parallel evolution. Yeah, it's very hard to tell. Mm-hmm. exactly where these guys are coming from because uh looking at just like the personnel involved um they seem to be involved in you know a few other bands in poland and they appear to be at least at first glance a little bit more normal extreme metal like the guitarist also has like a a funeral doom band he does uh the drummer is in some kind of like tech death stuff uh it's it's very strange, but so clearly they went into this with a very distinct, weird idea. 
and mm-hmm. that's that's always worthy of examination. Um, so speaking of the the heavy metalisms, uh, there was obviously that that very strange like uh, open uh, like just tinkling Iron Maiden melody in this like expansive negative space, which also mm-hmm. sounded like a a weird Sabbath part in a way, um, but. Here's an example of the band in full uh, heavy metal mode. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is off the track, I the Fool. And I remember when I heard this, I was just like, I was just flattened with weirdness. And I was like, (laughs) oh, oh, this is... This is this is why I still listen to random records, is to have experiences like this. I love that. Flattened by weirdness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. that's my favorite feeling. So yeah. <laughs> uh, let's uh let's just start this from the beginning and just see what we make of it. Alright. listening again that i realized just how much is going on on the drums on this yeah there's a lot going on in tiers of the music that are often de-emphasized i mean just also i just can't get over how heavy the drums and bass sound but like yeah the the flam on that right there right mm-hmm. just the yeah. ro- rolling they're just the rolling uh, you know roll act rolling but accented double bass right um yeah. so so the linking idea between all these disparate riffs is are these sort of major key phrases or major mm-hmm, key mm-hmm. intervals grinding up against like super chromatic ideas mm-hmm. um which is it's almost like a metallica thing in a way uh it's it's oh, so interesting god i i hear what you mean yeah, yeah, it's like Metallica gone death metal, but like weird, like Ride the Lightning era Metallica mm-hmm, gone mm-hmm. death metal. Um, 
because you've got this huge like the opening is basically the opening to a man of war song especially with like that trudging bass only part mm-hmm. you know right mm-hmm. before it accesses the first riff um but I guess what this reminds me most of, in a way, is certain parts of Greek black metal, especially Rotting Christ, mm-hmm. who have this similar affinity for, like, 70s and 80s rock and heavy metal filtered through an extreme metal context. Yeah, well, you could think about even, like, the prominent use of chug riffs in Rotting Christ. Um mm-hmm. A band I thought of when I heard this, so I think it confirms that is Septic Flesh. The, just that, yeah, yeah. That first Septic Flesh record, um, which has these kind of, um, just in terms of the mood, that's a kind of go-to for a kind of, quote, cryptic-sounding early death metal. I think mm-hmm. the guy from uh, Drag Car and Azath has talked about, he's written about that um, as like a whole school. But just really weird early death metal that has a melodic and mystical quality to it and kind of rough production and lots of Mm -hmm. keyboards and um yeah this kind of fits into that it's just like a much more beastly version of it yeah yeah it's (laughs) i i think that the what really sets us apart like you could you can imagine this being played in a more restrained way and Mm -hmm. it would kind of be like uh it, it would be arty throwback 80s stuff mm-hmm. but the sheer like viciousness of it like the intensity of the drumming and how extreme the vocals are really categorize it pretty differently yeah um before we move on to the later tracks before we uh before we uh go even more reptile brain I just want to say about the keys. That's something else that's really distinctive here. So they use keyboards, but like the way that, you know, Rotting Christ or, you know, Septic Flesh are going to use keys to produce this sort of rich, warm, immersive texture. Or like Rotting Christ uses it for drone, kind of like mm-hmm. sinister, powerful drone. Septic Flesh uses it for immersive texture. Th- this, are, this band writes very complicated key parts. That sound, it's like very gothic sounding minor key keyboard parts often. That sort of swirl. Um, it really mm. sounds like a keyboard's on the Kvist record I was talking about on the last show. Hmm. Uh, yeah. The sample I pulled didn't have keys in it. Um, but um, yeah, it could be sort of Norse second wave keyboard shit. And it just slides across the riffs. And it's mixed really low, even though there are these elaborate parts. And it just works to kind of interfere with the riffs. Yeah, it's like, like a, in an interesting way. No, in a good way. It's like the keyboards, it's like the riffs, the guitar has this massive tone, but it's playing these kind of, um, you know, noble or even bright sounding riffs. And then it's actually, and then it's the keys that are playing, nothing the keyboards themselves are playing is itself too dissonant, but it's much tonally darker. And it just crosses the guitar lines in ways that sort of, uh, yeah, grinds against them and produces a lot, just very gnarly. Um, and, 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 and with those keys and then just like the sub bass effect from the drums and the funking bass, I remember on some of these on some of these parts that we just sampled, I was sitting there thinking, this is noisy. 
Yeah, it is in a you, weird you, way. It like no, like not in the sense of like not really noise music, but in like in this wonderful sort of very purely metal sense of like this music is supposed to sound like a disorienting racket. Mm-hmm. And how often is it that you know if you're pretty seasoned, you hear something that hits you as strangely as it did when you first heard it? It's, like it's very rare. Yeah, where there's like this riff in the foreground and the vocals and then just all this mysterious noise swirling around it and just being, but not like in a quiet way, like in a kind of in-your-face way. Um, it's just pretty cool, man. I Yeah, I, I respect this. Oh, yeah, no, this is this is exactly the sort of like hyper-idiosyncratic stuff that I, it's like half the reason I do the show. Is, mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. to show off bands like this who are, you know, playing mm-hmm. with ideas in a way that really nobody else is. Also, with the with those keyboards, I want to mention, like, they've got these really complicated melodies, but they're so blown out with reverb and with really long attack. They sort of mm-hmm. jumble into themselves in this fascinating way. Oh, the keyboards? It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's so weird, dude. I, I don't know. This well, is just what that is is like great faith in like great faith in the overall effect and lack of ego. Mm-hmm. It's like yeah. the key, the keyboard parts are there's all this detail in the key parts, but the point isn't that you be able to hear every note. The point is that it emerges as this kind of continuum of sound and hearing all those notes produces this kind of irreducible kind of uh shape swirling spectral kind of kind of thing that you can't easily pin your finger on and put your finger on and <laughs> that's a very unique use of yeah that's a thing this did too uh but it's unusual and it's um and it's completely bizarre in a death metal context. Ab- absolutely, yeah. And again, the way that like, yeah, the way it's kind of like deliberately working against the riffs, it's, you know, it also just inverts the, the classic black metal formula with keys, right? If you think back to like, I am the Black Wizards or whatever, is you put the melody, you put the dissonant stuff on the guitar, and then the big melodic hooks come from the keys. And this like completely inverts <laughs> it. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. Um, so, uh, should we talk about the cover on this? Yeah, we should. I mean, you, you noted in your, uh, you took your notes on this before I did. So I saw your note that you, you seemed interested in the cover. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it, it's the weirdest thing. So track three of this record is a cover of Bathory's The Return of Darkness and Evil. And they redefine it as a death metal song basically perfectly. It's one of the strangest things I've ever heard to have a very faithful cover of this song be like indisputably death metal. Which suggests something very different about the way these guys interpret the boundaries between genres, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um... 
Yeah, this is, and just to put it third on the record, right? Normally you put the cover at the end as if it's this thing that's a little bit distinct from the rest of the record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is just one of the tracks, right? And yeah. so it has to stand or fall alongside the other tracks as uh, not just a novelty and not just a tribute, but like as a thing on its own. And uh, it does, man. So um, this is their cover of the Return, Return of Darkness and Evil. Uh, listen for where the vocalist burps the phrase victory. turn Bathory into a repulsion song or a slaughter song apparently yeah yeah right when that went going you you were like oh this is like a repulsion song and then i was like i was like shit this sounds like slaughter too and i mean those bands sound like each other but um yeah yeah the most extreme possible fringe of thrash yeah just um, super super chunky down-tuned riffs being played much faster than they're supposed to be and kind of looping on themselves in this insistent way right so instead of this like grooving speed metal riff you just get like you know um yeah it's awesome like yeah I mean, it's so sick <laughs> this is like what i heard it's and it fits in perfectly with the rest of the record like mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. it, it's so weird but it fits in perfectly with the texture of the rest of the music on this record and i mean moreover like so so this means that these guys are perceiving primordial extreme metal from a from a radically different perspective you know they're not seeing mm -hmm. bathory as something bracketed off they're mm -hmm. seeing that as, like, part of a greater tradition. 
you know, sort of beyond the boundaries of the genre, which is interesting because this is firmly, this is not a death metal record that does black metal things for the most part. It, it doesn't mm-hmm. feel like black metal hegemony has touched this, you know? Yeah, although it's very connected to black metal. Yeah, but, spiritually and in, in mood and stuff like that. Yes, but it's not colored by black metal gestures in the same way at all. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, and that's unusual, right? For something to be a sort of so closely related to black metal in many ways and yet not have black metal riffs or black metal sound quality or anything like that is unusual. You know what I'm thinking is like, this sounds like a... Like, we should ask Nick from Hessian Firm what he thinks about these guys. Yeah, he's probably got some reference points to this sort of thing that we don't know about. Because this is definitely... (laughs) This would be like... I described in the notes as like, you know, Hessian Firm is really into this sort of uh, conspicuously arty and intellectual old school Mm -hmm. death and black metal. And, And here's just like the insane version of of the kind of stuff that they're into. It, but, it, it's got the same ideas, but executed in a totally bizarre way. Yeah, but it ends up being pretty arty in its own way, right? Just like the early Black Metal. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I kind of wonder, like, whether... I, yeah, I kind of wonder if this would fit in on the, on the Hessian roster in some way. Because it's like, yeah. it's a similar idea executed just like instead of your reference points being like the 90s it's like the 80s Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely um and just to round things off uh so you can the bathory thing wasn't a one-off because there's another clearly bathory inspired Mm -hmm. song like early bathory inspired song uh towards Mm -hmm. the end of the record called the devil takes me away and this is just such a fucking ripper of a song mm-hmm. and just like the burp of victory there's a great gurgle <laughs> of the song title over and over again in this track so let's oh yeah i one. listened i listened for that after i saw oh, your yeah. note this is great let's uh let's listen to the first half of this one Oh, 
Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I described that bath recover as being kind of like uh, Repulsion. This is kind of like a, a slightly slowed down Terrorizer song. It, it, it's weird because a lot of that early, early grindcore is just a lot of like sped up Hellhammer riffs and shit like that. And that kind of gels with this whole thing of, you know, primordial extreme metal. Yeah, I was thinking Master Deathstrike. Yeah, Which yeah, definitely. Has a connection to Eastern Europe via Speckman, um, who moved to the moved to Czechia. Um, but uh, but yeah, like because that's more obviously death metal, but connected to Bathory too. Mm-hmm. Right? It's yeah, um, you, you, I, when I heard this one, I actually double checked to see if this was a cover of someone else, also. But it's mm-hmm. not. This is just them creating just... a perfect like. 1987 proto death metal song yeah and in some sense it's stylistically very different from the first two tracks we say right the Bathory cover and this are very different from the other two we sampled but they all Mm -hmm. clearly belong on the same record yeah no it's this is really fascinating music and I still don't feel like I've really like gotten my arms around it in terms Mm -hmm. of really understanding it it's just so, it's got that just intensely eccentric quality that is like at, it's like, it's almost frustrating at times because you're trying to figure out like, what's like the hinging center point of this music that like inspired these guys to go. But maybe it is really just what it looks like. It really is just reaching back to the 80s and reproducing it faithfully but letting the aesthetics just run wild. Yeah, I mean, this is super cool. Um, You know, this is the kind of record, like, where just even if the riffs were, like, worse, it would still (laughs) be great to listen to just because of the pure sound quality of it. Oh and, yeah, yeah. It's got a it's got a beautiful tone to it. Oh yeah, and like this is the kind of thing where like, you, you know, you'll you might make your ears ring listening to this because it's just it it sounds so good to turn up louder and louder and louder. <laughs> it's it's that clattering quality, you know that mm-hmm, uh, that's something mm-hmm. I miss is the clattering quality of late '80s shit where it's just mm-hmm. like. Even the guitars kind of sound like pots and pans falling down the stairs. In a hell yeah, hell yeah. You know I love the clatter. <laughs> um, I mean, really not much more to say beyond that. This is a fucking really cool record. And I hope that, I hope that our listeners will take the time to listen to the whole thing. Uh, because it's, it's just super interesting. It's super novel. I've never really heard anything like it. Um like yeah just check it out i mean this is out of nowhere less than five bucks on Bandcamp. yeah exactly so you know buy one less beer at your watain show and get this (laughs) in addition (laughs) better yet don't buy the watain ticket and save uh save seventy (laughs) dollars exactly (laughs) all right let's take a break and uh round out our show for the evening Hey, it's Kari from Sepulchre Curse. And I'm Yaku. You're listening to Terminus. All 
right, we're back with our final record of the night, the long-anticipated review of The Ruins of Beverest, the Thule Grimoires on Vaughn Records, of course. Uh, it's a good album. So what were you thinking for an outro track? Uh, maybe something else from Vaughn Records. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a good record. Um, uh yeah, should we I mean, just leave it there? <laughs> no, we should probably we should probably actually talk about it, although that would totally suffice because at this point if you've been listening to us, you know that uh, doing a review of a Ruins of Everest record is basically a formality. Uh Alexander is probably one of like the top 5 or 10 minds in the metal scene. Um Ruins of Beverest has never put out a bad record uh, and has almost never put out anything other than a phenomenal record, actually. Um, it's, I thought Blood it's Vaults... Dra- I thought Blood, Va- Blood Vaults drags a little bit, but... You see, I like Blood Vaults. I, I like the, the weird psychedelic mood of it. You Yeah, you also like more... You also listen to a subgenre called Torture Doom. <laughs> um, which, I mean, like, also, but it doesn't mean, yeah, it doesn't mean there's nothing there. It just meant it, you know, the pace. Like, if I went back and listened to it now, also, like, I might just be like, this is great. Well, uh, every Ruins of Beverest record is kind of an endurance test. Uh, I mean, that's part of the defining quality of the music mm-hmm. is, uh, you know the the very long records, uh, very long songs of uh, paradoxically minimal yet incredibly deeply textured music that still has big moments uh, scattered throughout it. Uh, obviously, there's no comparing uh, Ruins of Beverest to anything else. It, it's totally its own entity. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and we've talked about just, like, it is going to be very difficult to sample this. This particular album, uh, you know, there are, like, big events on Arons of Beverest albums. Um, I think some of the albums would lend themselves to sampling more. But on Thule Grimoires, you just get, like, kind of all the songs have similar kinds of parts as to the other songs. They just come in completely different spots of the song and sound different. Um, which sounds like utterly inane, but hopefully you know what I mean. It's like, it's like, there are, you couldn't break this. There's like a couple more psychedelic tracks, probably like Cromlech Nell and Mammothbolus. Other than that, that's the only like sort of hard and fast distinction between kinds of songs you could make on this record. And there are really big moments throughout it. And I I listened to it twice in a row the other night and uh, on the, on the second go through, and I was thinking on the second go through, I would hear, Oh, this is the part I want to sample or whatever. And then you just start noticing other cool parts. Oh yeah. No, I, we had originally planned to do this with full fledged sampling and everything, but the reality is, I mean, I had already picked, I wanted to do something off the tundra shrines and, Mm -hmm. uh, Probably either Anchorus and Furs or Polar His Hysteria. Uh, but ultimately, A Ruins of Everest album has to be listened to as a complete unit. Um, 
and it just it does not operate. Probably the single biggest achievement of Ruins of Everest is doing incredible metal records that are structurally not like metal records at all. No, structurally his okay. That's the thing we can say. Structurally, Ruins of Everest composes like an industrial musician. Um, yes, yes. You could hear that, especially in the old stuff, like Fifty uh, Forts Along the Rhine, or Rain on the Rain Upon the Impure. Yeah, that um, which is one of my favorite albums of all time. Yes. Oh, what a, what a great album. Um, yeah. So Fifty Forts Along the Rhine is the tra- is the track from that, and Rain uh, Rain Upon the Impure is the record. Is that it? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. It's um. Do so is it soil of the incestuous that has just that kind of like wonderful raining quality? It's like cascading. I mean, that's, that's kind of the whole record. The whole record that's has true. this yeah. like gloomy like you're you're on like a river boat in World mm-hmm. War One, like looking through the fog in the dead of night at like pillbox emplacements. Like that's the vibe I always get from that record. <laughs> That's a vibe. Um, but, um, yeah, so on that record in particular, there are these kind of, like, cataclysmic shifts between parts. Mm-hmm. They're just, like, these monolithic blocks. Um, each part happens and then switches. And the switch is a huge moment, but it is not, like, a development of anything it's not moving from riff B, riff A to riff B. It's not like, uh, there's no sort of conventional song idea joining them. They're just these massive slabs of musical material that are being slammed down next to each other. Well, what would you um, say in the industrial field that it's most similar to? Would you say something like Coil? Coil, yes. Yeah, um, in the the way it's arranged, or or you know, like neo folk, they're kind of arranged like neo folk songs. Co- like, coil, uh, yeah, coil is like neo folk. I mean, coil is like the most, you know, that's where that annoying word post industrial comes in, right? But like, <laughs> yeah, so the early neo folk stuff. If you listen to it for folk music, you'll be sorely disappointed, right? Because they're structured in this strange kind of. There are some beautiful melodies on them, but they're structured in this kind of collage method, right? Yeah, and like, is, I mean, Ruins of Everest does remind me of something like Death in June much more than it does any other like heavy metal band, really. Oh, sure, and spiritually, it's more akin to that um, in terms mm-hmm. of the cult, the reference points, um, the 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 deep well of cultural reference points, and the willingness to do this kind of like dream work from throughout sort of European history. Like yeah, that... there's creative work being, it's not just like, I mean, you can do creative work trying to like, like a lot of black metal, for instance, like after the, you know, we've talked all the time about this sort of creative nexus of fantasy Satanism in the early nineties. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and this is, like, a more refined version of that, where, like, there are all these... Yeah, kind of Ruins of Everest kind of is, like, a esoteric pagan band, right? But he's not yeah. doing, like, pagan themes, right? <laughs> he Well, no, he, I, 
he's he's not like singing song he's he's using that as the underlying logic and then he's drawing up all these different images and juxtaposing them and cutting them together and the underlying impulse joining them has this spiritual thing to it he's not like talking about paganism yeah no i think i think you really hit on something when you talked about this sort of internal dream logic Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, that's like very precise and very individual to Alexander, where you have this sort of pastiche of like historical and like occult and supernatural mm-hmm. themes. But I think he literally sees all those things as being part of the same fundamental texture. It's like he's finding the the supernatural ghosts at the heart of historical events and finding the history in supernatural events, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Uh, It's, yeah, sort of coordinating between mythic time and historical time in these kind of unexpected Mm -hmm. ways. And it feels like totally, and despite that, it feels totally unstuck in place and time. Like, mm-hmm. like Alexander would never do something this clear cut, but you can imagine a, a song about like, you know, mid 1800s occult practices going next to some like dreamy remembrance of World War One or two. And they're made of the same fabric. A- absolutely. Yes. It's I mean, it, it has the quality of like modernist literature. Yeah, you know, no, I, I was going to say that. It's like, it's, it's literally it's, the best parts of what modernist art gave us. Yeah, it's like this, you know, I mean, Elliot, right, says something like, uh, at the end of the Wasteland, like, these fragments I have shored against my ruin, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, just these kind of, like, uh, assemblage of fragments um, or the cantos by pound, which are appear to be incredibly fractured, but have this inner. Um, there are inner. There are patterns of images that link what seem to be wildly disparate cultural reference points. Like you'll be in ancient Greece one line, and there will be a Chinese sage speaking the next, and then there will be memories of the avant-garde art scene in London, and then you'll be somewhere else, right? But what's uniting them is all this thing they're talking about to each other. All these different voices. Um, Yeah. And that's what... It almost makes you wonder... Like... And this is going to end up being a really bizarre review. Because it's like... We're we're sort of reviewing the ruins of Beverest, right? Kind of, yeah. yeah. Because at this point, it's it's just like... It's art. The stuff that he puts out is just kind of beyond conventional critical uh you know the thought it's 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 so dreamy and it's so singular and i I guess one thing i'm really interested in is just what is it all driving towards is it driving towards something because it's like you can see the way these ideas it's like every Ruins of Beverest album... It's, remember when we were talking about paganism on a bonus episode mm-hmm. and you said mm-hmm. every winter is both the same winter and unique unto itself? Mm-hmm. Every mm-hmm. Ruins of Beverest record is 
sort of the same record, but unique unto itself. But he keeps sharpening the ideas behind it, moving in these really dark, mystical directions. Um, and you can see that in the progression from something earlier and more conventionally black metal, like Unlock the Shrine or Rain Upon the mm-hmm. Impure. And then you've got a hinge point right around like Phallist Semen or Blood Vaults mm-hmm. where it it feels like he's really refined his idea. He like he's not revealing it to the audience, but like internally he's sharpened what he's looking for, what he's trying to express. I feel like the Ruins of Everest is like an internal puzzle for Alexander, and you're watching him assemble the pieces of it in real time through these records. Uh, yeah, I think that's well said. I mean, uh, he, yeah, on those middle records, it's like he, he the sound gets more conspicuously metal, but less mm-hmm. black metal, right? It kind of gets that people say it's doomy or whatever. Eh, it's just slow. Uh, yeah. Just slow and loud. Um, but yeah, like, the fragment method of composition never really goes away. He just gets more interested in sort of smoothing away the differences. But he gets more interested in he gets more interested in a kind of continuity. But the underlying sense that there are these these things aren't written like songs. We move from one sound to another. So if that never really goes away, this record, I would say, would you say this record's about as close as he's gotten to writing song based stuff? I think that I think on certain songs like mm-hmm. Anchorus and Furs is a very yeah. clear song in a way that he does very rarely, um, and I think well part of it is it naturally feels more songy because this is to a large degree sort of like a goth rock record. Absolutely, yeah, and that was always a subtext and. Um... I was a subtext of this. I think you in the past have compared. You're a huge Typo fan, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Love Typo Negative. And I think I, I remember being back in the day kind of throw. I thought of, like, Typo as kind of goofy, like, in a great way, obviously. We all love Pete Steele. But, like, mm. um, like I, I think I remember not getting the Ruins of Everest Typo comparison back in the day. A lot of sense to me now, especially on this record. Yeah, yeah. He's... Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is taking taking kind of the the aesthetics and some of the melodic motifs of goth rock mm-hmm. and then applying it to this incredibly sprawling horizontal music, which doesn't really have a comparison anywhere else. I mean, you might know because you know goth music a lot better. Is, was there anyone doing this sort of... <laughs> like goth rock that has nothing to do with like rock song structures at all. Well, death metal guy, I'm glad you asked. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, in terms of like nothing to do with, well, not the song structure thing is not where I was going to go with it. That's interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, probably if you're going to say, well, yeah, maybe Lycia, um, mm-hmm. who are probably an influence here. He's probably familiar, but, um, like, if you want to go to not wrong rock song structures, you end up back towards post-industrial territory. Does that make sense? Yeah, I which is it. like all—it's all kind of gothy too, right? Um, mm-hmm. But like, um, 
In terms of the big influence on this record, guitar-wise, it's Fields of the Nephilim. Um, yeah. And the sort of, um, you know, the stereotypical phrase is glistening arpeggio, right? In these kind <laughs> of, um, uh, that were kind of anticipated things black metal did, but weren't really directly imitated in BM at all until maybe... We've tried to trace it on this show. Maybe like Forgotten Woods has it a bit. Maybe Migla has it a bit. Um, but this, it's all over here. And he's drawing not just on like, I don't know, the tracks people all know, like Moonchild or whatever. It's not mm. so much this kind of, it's not as, it's the more, it's not so much the grooving kind of uh, Alistair Crowley Motorhead songs. It's It's more like the, immersive psychedelic almost 60s sounding aspect of it elysium is the record it's their third one and it goes there are these very graceful fast light songs at the beginning and end but there are these huge vast psychedelic spaces in the middle that are like difficult to sit down and just listen to like you don't just put that album on to, to like rock out you know what i mean uh yeah but yeah i get that i used to listen to it to like fall asleep and stuff and 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 that has it's it's both like way more out in terms of structure and playing than the other records but also sounds more rocky and this i think i think this sounds a lot like elysium like on cromlech now and mammothpolis you get these kind of like almost like groovy psychedelia major key kind of ideas mm-hmm like almost bluesy stuff there and like that is very this kind of very much like this later fields of the nephilim kind of thing yeah um well i, I another important component of the ruins of everass music i feel is the persistent drone of it it mm-hmm. the, it feels like every ruins of everass album continuously just has like a a 30 hertz sub bass going on in it there's this there's this rumble to the music this just this unbelievable weight to it which is still present here even though you're hearing what are in some ways more accessible sounds than you've ever heard before from the project mm-hmm. yeah it still rumbles um it's <laughs> The sense of gravity persists throughout, for sure. Um, I mean, where can can we think of a good example of that? Um, oh well, uh, I mean, I wanted to do something off of uh, the Tundra Shines. All right, let's do let's it. Let's just drop in the middle of that at eighteen minutes on the YouTube video. Yeah, just see we decided we decided what we're doing is yeah, we're gonna play Ruins of Everest Russian Roulette for the samples. So here we go.
You see, what's great is we can do this with this album because any moment, any like random couple minute chunk that we select is going to have 50 things to talk about in it. Yeah, even if it's in the middle of like a droney part, because just the sound design is so good. Right? Oh yeah, um, and even even in the middle of the droney part, there it's like there's instrumental voices appearing and disappearing. Uh, you, you know, you've got what's basically a, a huge like sleep riff that transforms into like a skepticism idea because he adjusts the last couple chords and adds that that lead almost underneath the rhythm guitar in the mix. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And of course you've got that that strobing like vocal sample playing continuously throughout it. Uh, That's the other thing that relates him to like Coil and Death and June and shit, right? Is that he literally, not only does he arrange his guitars like he's sampling, but he uses tons of samples and they're not just filler or background. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's... All of this music is plotted out so carefully. It's It really is composed. <laughs> you know, it, it's like uh, other mm -hmm. bands write songs. Alexander composes things. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and it's just... Like, again, that was a totally random passage, and it was like, immediately, it was like, oh, this is genius. This is, this is mm -hmm. beautiful. This is exquisite. This is going back to, like, Stormcrow fleet, but also... 20,000 years in the future. It's like, oh, okay. Yeah. So also, you could great. bang your head to it. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's incredibly heavy, and it it seizes on the things that we like in extreme metal mm -hmm. while not using any of that vocabulary, really. Yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, so much of the core riffing style here, or even on, even on Foulless Semen or whatever, so much of the core riffing style is just more like heavy metal oh yeah and yeah, then you know, something like, like rain upon the pure i raised this stone as a ghastly <laughs> right the riffs there are just sort of like if you told a caveman about what heavy metal was yeah. and let him go right and mm. then well he also customizes his guitar style because unlike rain upon the impure which is more like a black metal record Mm -hmm. It's still like indecipherable chord blocks intersecting mm -hmm. with each other. They are not riffs in the conventional sense of black metal by any means. Oh, yeah. So let's listen to this. Yeah, he almost never writes a regular black. Yeah, he usually does this kind of like they're used. They're in this kind of Phrygian scale feel, but it's almost arbitrary that they're in that. There's a lot of dissonance, too. They sound, you know. Yeah, just very, on that record, like on 50 Forts or whatever, right? That's just like, mm -hmm. they're very just high velocity uh, texture. Yeah. Um, here, um, he does the, the close, like, as far as I can remember, there's there's some cool blast in, um, in um, Our Despots Cleanse the Levant. Um, there's some pretty cool like blast riffing i remember but it also doesn't sound anything like normal bm riffs i think in desert i think in either polar hiss or deserts to bind and defeat we get the closest thing i've heard to like a normal trem riff in the kind of like 
melodically corded black metal style, kind of like Eternus. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see if we can find it. Give me a sec. I guess well, that would break. Wait, that would yeah, break just, the Russian roulette approach. Yeah, just I'll just a, shoot. Chuck a timestamp and like, let's just rip it and see if we can find it. tone on this record it's so weird it's a little bit like it's kind of got less body than some of the guitars in the past it's a little bit like glassier mm-hmm. i think all the tones on this record are very liquid yeah it's uh, it, it's like it's it's deep in tone but mm-hmm. it's not really heavy in a conventional sense it's like it's like he stacked 10, like, 70s fuzz pedals on top of each other and ran it like that. And the riff is unusual, too. Yeah, so that wasn't the riff I was looking for, but whatever. Um, But we do get to his version of uh, one of his blast riffs at the end, and it's more riffy than some of the stuff on the the, the older records, but it's not really riffy in a black metal riffy way, except unless, like, you took a Celtic Frost riff and put blast beats under it. Like it's just got this huge bend in it. Um, oh, that huge bend is what makes it. Yeah, but wow, um, he holds it for way too long. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Yeah, overall, I think the tones on this are more more liquid. Things kind of it's the most flowy ruins of Everest. It's the most like despite there still being these sections like at the end of that sample where something will drop out and then just will be on a new idea it still has that kind of discontinuity in it but this is the most most flowing it's been and and the most kind of continuous all the different sounds have been with each other yeah i never um... get a sense that he's like shifting a style yeah no not like it in the, this does have a much smoother continuum to it than a lot of Ruins records where the thrill is after for you know, ran upon the Empire, four minutes of sawing away at these like 
beautiful granite wall blocks of chords, the chord changes over the same blast beat. And it's like the mm-hmm. world's biggest moment. And that's mm-hmm. that's not knocking it. It literally is when it happens. It mm-hmm. feels like the world is fucking falling apart. Mm-hmm. Um, but here, uh, it, it's not really based on abrupt changes. Uh, there is definitely this sort of like continuous dreamy quality to it. Uh, I mean, like we were saying earlier, it's like Ruins of Everest is all about this this continuous interrelating flow between reality and the supernatural. And I think he captures that really well with the structuring on this. Yeah. I think thematically it seems to be dealing with this idea of like, I don't know, like pre, you know, ice age or pre ice age, like hyperborean cities or something, right? Kind of like Conan, the barbarian ideas, but a cult, right? Yeah, sort of yeah. like um, like Mammothpolis, right? Sort of the idea of like vast, pre, you know, prehistoric, like sort of sprawling prehistoric megalith cities with mammoths and shit. Um, <laughs> it's so awesome. Yeah, it's really cool, man. Um, and you know, but yeah, with this free movement through time, right? Then we're on like Anchorus and Furs. That's Anchorus being like a. You know, I mean, like a, like an anchorite is a male hermit, so I guess a female hermit, right? But an anchorist could mm-hmm. also be like someone who would be, the, um, like the presiding nun at a certain kind of convent. I think. Um, yeah, it's... I don't think. I mean, I don't think any of the, his stuff is meant to be directly interpreted or translated you know i think it relies on the the passage of moods i i think that alexander is the kind of like really smart musician who understands that music is not very good at presenting very specific and direct ideas but it's incredible when it works in the realm of metaphor as a whole and I think that that's what makes his music so masterful is his understanding that the only way to process it is to allow yourself to slip into that same dream logic that he composes with. Well, in Exuvia, he actually basically told people what it was about, at least with certain songs. Um, if you want to, the um, listeners should check out if they haven't the Bardo Methodology interview with him. It is Mm -hmm. really, really, really good. It's a well-done interview, and his responses are fascinating. Um, But um, that was for Exuvia a couple years ago. But um, a while ago now. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, there's a song called, like, Surtur Barbar Maritime. Mm -hmm. And it's, like, barbar, like, barbarian, I guess. Just bizarre juxtaposition of words, right? And the lyrics are this kind of, like, allegory about you know, the, the Ragnarok myth, but it's all kind of, um, as it's pulled into his personal symbolism. So there's not like, he's kind of like, he's not going to directly retell that to you. He said something about like, you know, um, identifying the, the Jotuns, you know, with, and, 
and search the fire giant with like uh sort of like monstrous uh, just destroyers of culture or something hmm. right so sort of like and you know you might ordinarily associate them with like forces of nature or whatever right yeah but here in this song it takes on a different meaning and everything he says and it's not like the things he says about it are like clear when he describes what the record's about he's almost still writing lyric text when he tells you what <laughs> it's about like there's something deliberately yeah i mean i think you're right that it's it's about it will certainly force you to if you wanted to figure out what it's about you would have to think it through minutely um, I don't even know if you could do that because I think that part of it is that it's it's irreducible, like it's it's like he's chosen this presentation for these ideas because they are the only way those ideas can be presented. He can't just write a book about it; like it doesn't actually capture it. Uh, I don't know if those are inconsistent. I mean, like, I I think the idea is just there's a lot of there's like infinite depth there mm -hmm. right uh well did, when we were talking to serpent column right he talked about the sort of like infinite richness of a great work of art right yeah so there's always more you can do interpreting it or trying to trying to figure it out but like if there are these networks of symbols left for you you're obvious he wants you to play his game mm -hmm. right that, that's and, uh, kind of what well i'm i'm happy to play it year after year <laughs> yeah